happening? At Beansworth White Sox Park for a radio station promotion called Anti Disco. Between games at tonight's doubleheader, a local disc jockey blew up disco records in center field, and the crowd responded by rushing the field. Police moved in, and it took them a considerable amount of time. A bonfire had been built in the middle of center field. Police tried to clear the unruly crowd, pushed them out, finally got them off the field, although, again, it took a long time, perhaps some arrests. It's hard to tell. Some people appear to be taken into custody. Greetings to all you runalogs and wrestophiles out there. Welcome to episode 26 of All You Ever Think About Is Sparks, the only and therefore best podcast devoted to the musical stylings of that timeless American pop duo from the 1960s, Urban Renewal Project, a.k.a. Half Nelson. I am your humble host, Christian Huey. Later in the program, I'm also joined by my other voice, Monty Mallon, who's also the host of the highly recommended podcast, So Important, available on Podsnatchers everywhere the internet is sold. Our big news today is the occasion of the birth of one Ronald David Mayle, who just celebrated 77 trips around the center of our solar system. Happy birthday, Ron! For the record, I'm celebrating this special day by recording this episode in my birthday suit, which should make you all relieved that this is an audio-only recording. Today, we'll be discussing the second half of 1979's earthquake-triggering album, Number One in Heaven, as well as the criminally overlooked side project, Is There More to Life Than Dancing?, fronted by one Patricia Noel, going by the mononym Noel. Words and music by Ron and Russell Mayle. The LP is a white, hot slab of Marauder-style disco, although Marauder himself had little to nothing to do with the album's production himself. In the interest of keeping the runtime of this episode down to something manageable, I will only be playing snippets of the songs from that album, although I strongly encourage you to seek the album out. I promise uh, you'll find it in one form or another, although sadly it is not to be found on major streaming services. I'm also going to pay tribute to the development of the Syndrome, the electronic drum kit heard here and there on Number One in Heaven, and much more copiously on the Noel album. So, what do you say we beat the clock and uh, now may we start? In the past she wouldn't ever hope to stay But there was nothing she could read about To make him feel a safe So Hey, listeners, uh, sorry for the uh, change in uh, recording quality here. I'm recording this uh, after all of the uh, main content. Uh, Because of the length of um, this uh, episode, uh, the length of um, my conversation with Monty Mallon, which I didn't want to cut anything out of um, because I thought it was uh, all pretty um, valuable, uh, I've decided to cut this episode into two halves. So uh, for this one, uh, we are going to get uh, all the way through the second half 
of uh, Number One in Heaven. And then for the next episode, we are going to um, discuss the Noel album, Is There More to Life Than Dancing? So hope you enjoy both halves. Oh, uh, well, one last thing. Um, I, I did mention in the introduction that you would hear um, information about the syndrome invention. Uh, well, I, I've decided to push that also to the um, the next episode as well, just to, you know, give you a, a little something extra. All right, here we go. The second that first guy shimmied down the outfield wall, I knew my life was over. Those rueful words were uttered by one Mike Veek, former promotions director for the Chicago White Sox and son of that team's one-time owner. The White Sox had been slogging through a lousy season in the summer of 1979, and ticket sales for the games were way down from previous years. In an effort to get more butts in the bleachers, Veek began to rely on promotional stunts. Special promotions at Kaminsky Park were nothing new. Mike's dad, Bill, had started the tradition back in the 40s. Now, Bill owned the team and had installed young Mike in his old position. The pressure was on the younger Veek from the get-go to make his dad proud. After the night of July 12th, this would prove difficult. The stunt was a risky one, and the potential for danger to both people and property had to have crossed his mind. Ironically, it seemed the biggest fear shared by the Veeks about the plan was simply that it would fizzle and embarrass them, the team, and maybe even the city itself. Mike had recalled that Kaminsky Park's Disco Night promotion in 1977 was a success. Now, with an incipient backlash against disco from rock and roll fans emerging, he mused if maybe an anti-disco night would work this time. He decided to team up with a local music station to help with the promotion and found a zealous collaborator in loudmouth DJ and vehement anti-disco crusader Steve Dahl. Dahl's radio station, MLUP, known as The Loop, had switched from a rock format to disco near the end of 1978, and Dahl remained on the air, playing the disco records as directed, but making his scorn for the genre well-known to listeners tuning in. He made fun of the records and disco culture in general. He would drag the needle across the records audibly after playing them, followed by explosion sound effects. Dahl even put a band together and released a single lampooning Rod Stewart's massive Do You Think I'm Sexy? and gave it the rather unimaginative title, Do You Think I'm Disco? All the on-air explosions gave Mike Veek the idea for the gimmick he thought could work. Have fans come to the game with their disco records, collect them onto the field, and Dahl would literally blow them up in a huge pile. To sweeten the deal, anyone showing up with a disco record to sacrifice would pay a mere 98 cents for a ticket. July 12th was scheduled to be a doubleheader between the Sox and the Detroit Tigers. The explosion would be staged during the 30-minute downtime between games. The stunt was promoted as Disco Demolition Night. White Sox officials hoped for a turnout of around 20,000 attendees, around 5,000 more than recent attendance records, and hired security in accordance with those expectations. Instead, it was later estimated that upwards of 50,000 were present that night, selling out the entire park. 
An additional 20,000 or so remained outside the park after being denied entry. White Sox owner Bill Veeks began to grow concerned once he started spotting various signs and banners that read, Disco Sucks, and other more profane messages. There was an agitated fervor among the crowds that gathered. It looked like many of the folks that showed up, both in the bleachers and outside the gates, had something other than baseball on the brain. They wanted spectacle. They wanted destruction. They wanted... what, exactly? Vengeance, maybe? Soon after the first game began, it was clear that some of the attendees had flouted the instructions and had snuck their vinyl records with them to their seats. Discs started whizzing this way and that, slicing through the air from the stands and onto the field. To protect themselves, the players put on batting helmets as they played their positions. After the first game, which saw the Sox lose 4-1 to against the Tigers, officials wheeled a giant box containing the collected vinyl onto center field. Steve Dahl emerged onto the field in a jeep, clad in army fatigues and a combat helmet, and accompanied by his broadcast partner, Gary Meyer, and the fashion model, Lorelei, who had thrown out the game's opening pitch. The wartime cosplay riled up the crowd even more than they already had been. Presumably out of vinyl to toss, fans began throwing beer cans, firecrackers, and the odd marijuana joint. By the way, announcer Harry Carey commented over the radio about the overpowering marijuana smell wafting from the bleachers. After Dahl and Meyer led the crowd into rising fevered chants of disco sucks, Dahl approached the box of records and announced from the field, We rock and rollers will resist and we will triumph. This is now officially the world's largest anti-disco rally. Now listen, we took all the disco records you brought tonight, we got them in a giant box and we're gonna blow them up real good. And with that, Orwellian display of unsettlingly focused rage, a fuse was lit and thousands of disco records, LPs, 45s, 12-inch records, 7-inch records, exploded into a ball of fire, sending fragments of pitch-colored shrapnel across the field and filling the twilight air with noxious smoke. And then... The demonstration became a riot. Dozens, hundreds, eventually thousands of frenzied disco haters clambered down onto the field, setting fire to or demolishing anything within view. White Sox pitcher Ken Kravick, who was warming up for the second game, fled the pitcher's mound and joined his teammates in a barricaded clubhouse. Batting cages destroyed, bases pulled up and literally stolen. The grass on the field burned or torn up. Owner Bill Veeks grabbed a microphone and pleaded with the mob to get off the field. The scoreboard lit up with the words, Please return to your seats. Lorelei, the model, was ushered away to safety by security guards. All the while, a bonfire raged center field. It took the arrival of Chicago PD's riot squad for the crowd to finally disperse. 39 arrests were made, and upwards of 30 injuries were reported. Game 2 was never played. The White Sox were forced to forfeit to the Tigers. Decades on, the events of 1979's Disco Demolition Night mark a 
discomposing shift in American popular culture, and its effects would soon spread throughout the broader Western world. Whether or not the riot was a causal agent or a harbinger or a lagging indicator of the anti-disco backlash, it's hard to deny the reactionary forces that were, at least in part, fueling that backlash. That the rioters that day who screamed disco sucks were largely straight white men was not a coincidence. Disco music and the disco scene was derided by the anti-disco rock purists as unserious, effeminate pap. Behind this sentiment was frequently a poorly disguised racist, sexist, and homophobic posture. For years, disco was thought of by this ilk as the provenance of blacks, Latinos, gays, women. Disco, having gone mainstream in the wake of the massive film Saturday Night Fever and its ubiquitous soundtrack, was, at least to some young straight white American men, a threat to their status. At its very root, the Disco Sucks movement grew from the seeds of a kind of moral panic. Not long after Disco Demolition Night, Disco began to drop off the charts. Sales of Disco records plummeted, and discotheques themselves started shutting down or rebranding themselves as dance clubs. As Russell Mayle pointed out in a later interview, the very word disco became taboo and would soon be rechristened dance music as the genre adapted to changing tastes. Around the same time, as the gross vandalism of Disco Demolition Night was taking place, Sparks were enthusiastically promoting an album of music that would have likely triggered the ire of those atavistic so-called rockists, if any of them actually ever heard it. But in the U.S., Number One in Heaven was a complete flop. As with most of their career to that point, Sparks spent most of their time and energy in Europe in general and in the U.K. in particular. But Disco Sucks was contagious and eventually spread across the Atlantic. Number One in Heaven was the only Sparks album made with the disco-fied, marauder-assisted aesthetic. Even though they would partner with Giorgio on the album's immediate follow-up, they retreated afterward to a sound that was more new wave than dance or disco. And Russell Mayle would have to eat his words about Sparks being done with guitars. Hello? Is that Virgin Records? Yes, uh, this is Malcolm Jones of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John and Glickstein Associates. Um, my firm represents the Almighty. Uh, you probably know him as God. Uh, now, it has been brought to my attention that you have released an album by Sparks with the title Number One in Heaven. Now, good Lord, this is a gross piece of misrepresentation and contravenes the Trades Description Act. My client is, was and will in perpetuity be Number One in Heaven. To suggest otherwise constitutes blasphemy, criminal libel, invasion of privacy, and gross breach of copyright. Now, I'm a reasonable man. Now, I've no objections as such to the following tracks from the album, which uh, a lot of people up here seem to be getting off on. You're so independent, but that's gone. 
Hey everybody. Okay, so here's your little uh, tutorial uh, for the day. Uh, my tutorial one one oh one. This comes courtesy of a user by the name of Base two five four at btinternet.com. Uh, this uh, these, this is the base lick, the baseline for uh, beat the clock. Uh, according to this person who um, transcribed it, it is in. It is in the uh, key of E major. Not a whole lot of surprises here. Starts off something like uh, this, uh, doing octaves. You gotta beat the clock. You gotta beat the clock. Something like that, right? Uh, and then you've got uh, a pure a B to an A. Got a little something here uh, for the, uh, the 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 bridge or the middle eight or whatever you want to call it. It's a uh, we have a C sharp going up to an F sharp. Well, and then down to the B and then to an E. Down one half step. Couldn't take no more Had no time to learn to cry Goodbye mama got to fly Bye 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 And then when we get to get into that middle eight Well I've seen everything there is I've done everything there is I've met everyone but Liz Now I've even met old Liz No time for relationships Skip the foreplay, let her rip You gotta beat the clock You gotta beat the clock Okay, that's it for today. Hey there, Monty. How you doing? Go ahead, start over. <laughs> All right. Hey there. Uh, so I may cut most of this uh, part out, but uh, 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 this is uh, me, Christian. I am uh, having a conversation with uh, Monty Mallon uh, for our um, number one in heaven part two episode. And uh, we're just going to take it from here. It's good to talk to you, Monty. It's great to talk to you and to see you again, Christian. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the last time we talked, we sort of focused on uh, the first half of the album, and then we talked about the album a little bit more generally. And um, and for those of you who listened to the entirety of that episode that I uh, released, there was a lot of technical stuff in there as well, and, and, and some of the um, history that led up to the recording of that album. And so for, for this conversation, I want to, A, let Monty be able to talk about what he wasn't able to talk about in the last episode and then B uh, discuss uh, side B of number one in heaven. Um, and then, or, or as, or as I call it side a, or as you call it side a, that's right. And you know what? Yeah. Right. I, I think that's sticking with some people. <laughs> I, seems... I have 
heard from a couple of people like, oh my God, that's right. Yeah, it's right. And it, and it does make sense, right? I think they could have uh, 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 messed with the uh, track listing uh, a bit there. <laughs> uh, I also want to take a little bit of time to talk about, and it may not take a whole lot of time, but I want to talk a little bit about uh, about the um, promotion of the album, uh, which there was not a lot in the traditional sense uh, in that they did not tour. Um, uh, although Sparks did show up on a few radio stations and TV programs that were mostly in the UK. In fact, I'm not even sure when the album itself was released in the, in the USA. I, 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 I had to double check myself to make sure that it actually was released in the U S but you, it your was, it was, it was around the same time, I believe okay. very close to it. Yeah. And then I wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about what I'm growing to consider to be sort of a companion album to this, which is uh, Noel's Is There More to Life Than Dancing? And uh, we'll get to that a little bit later. But Noel was this um, uh, unknown. Uh, I don't know if she was a model. I think I may have read she was a model, but uh, but from from L.A., she was a model and a singer, and uh, and uh, uh, Russ and Ron were tapped by Virgin to produce a uh, an album uh, of hers, and uh, which, which I think is actually has stood up um, fairly fairly well. Uh, but let me start with you, Monty. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let me jump in. Um, I was listening to the recording and I, it was, it was really a great conversation. I really enjoyed it, but I realized I, there were a couple of things I said that I just want to, one is just a very quick amplification. The second is a quick clar- clarification. And then the third that I'm going to add, and maybe I'll save this for the end is a reassurance, but um, just uh, on the amplification aspect, I, I talked about how Indiscreet was kind of the album that hooked me on Ron and Russell's journey, but mm. that's there. I left out a little bit in the middle because after I got proper, we're probably the only people who even care about this Christian, but nah. that's just been on my mind. There's at um, least 12 more, <laughs> but after it was, at, yeah, I came in with propaganda and kimono, but then I went back and d- went back and said, well, I got to get everything I can by these guys. So I got the first two albums. And then it was, wait, these guys are singing about saccharin and they're singing about, um, about you that. know, uh, diets and you know, all the things and cows and, mm-hmm. you know, all these things and losing your uh, virginity and all these things that are normally not the topic of albums. And I said, so that was really what got me hooked. And it was indiscreet that put me over the top. But those first two albums, they still stand as mm-hmm. really amazing albums. And in my mind, they kind of set the tone for indiscreet. I think Indiscreet almost, this might be a bold thing to say, but mm-hmm. I think Indiscreet almost has more in common with those two albums than with Kimono and Propaganda. Wow, that is bold. Yeah, because they were able to just do whatever they wanted, and they came up with such a panoply of tunes and styles and music. So, anywho, anyway. Panoply is that was, right. Yeah, that was just one thought I wanted to throw out there, that I, I wanted to make sure I gave those first two albums their due. Because they're the ones that really got me thinking. There's something special about these guys, um, and the clarification is just that when I talked about how 
to me, side one was side two and side two is side one when we were talking about number one in heaven. I talked about how it's, it starts with beat the clock and then ends with number one in heaven. But of course, what I meant was that it ends with La Dolce Vita. Right. That was the totality of the album. And to me, to La Dolce Vita, as I mentioned, is one of my top 10 or so spark songs of all. And to me, it was just this, and I know you didn't see it quite as in the same way, but to me, it was just this big, powerful piece of music. And it seemed like, wow, that's an album closer. So that's all. Like I said, we're, there probably aren't a whole lot of people who care about this, but it's been on my mind the whole time. So I just wanted to get it out there for you. Yeah, no, I, I think I can go on record as saying that if you started the album with Beat the Clock and if you swapped out my opinion, and, and and maybe I'm hearing you right, I'm not sure. If you swapped out the end of that side with the end of the other side and you had number one in heaven as the closer. On no, five. no, I was just saying keep the album exactly oh, as oh. it is. Oh, and really? End it with La Dolce Vita. And oh, you really? got Because to me, La Dolce Vita is okay. such a powerful piece of music. That was a perfect album, and I just figured that's what they did all these years. Oh, no kidding. Okay. Yep. And then the digital age taught me otherwise. Uh, so I, I don't know if we talked about this a whole lot. I'm just, uh, frankly, going through the notes that I uh, wrote down for this uh, episode. Uh, some of this I, I might rewrite, you know, and then record later. Um, but... Uh, as much as we admire uh, this this album, it actually it it, it wasn't that successful uh, in the marketplace. Not really. Uh, I mean, it was the most successful album certainly in the UK since Indiscreet. Uh, they uh, the album itself in the UK uh, only hit seventy three in in their charts. Yeah, which is pretty interesting. The first uh, single that they released was La Dolce Vita. But they did not. But they released it in just a handful of countries. Um, but uh, number when they released a uh, number one song in heaven, that climbed to number fourteen, and that was the the biggest uh, British hit that they uh, had since "Never Turn Your Back on Mother Earth." So that's a good you know four years or so. Now I don't know. Uh, did you have you did you see any of the um, top of the pops? Yeah, appearances that they made around that time. You mean the? Uh, you mean the top, of, the top of the pops or the various videos that they made for some of these songs? Well, I, I want to get into both, um, but I thought it was interesting that the 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 promotion that they did for this album was kind of well, it was it was limited to uh, radio stations and uh, and TV shows, and they did almost all of this in the UK. And I, I, I looked into it, and uh, they were on top of the pops at, at least twice. D- judging by what they were wearing, I think it was more than twice, like three, at least three times in the UK. Um, doing, they did Beat the Clock. They did uh, Number One in Heaven. Um, and they did uh, Trials for, for the Human Race. So I'm just curious if you, if you ever got to see any of those. I think I saw the beat the clock clock one. I mean, it's you can find it on YouTube. I think it's so it's out there. Yeah, that's how I found it. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't. Where are you going with it? I mean, what what is what's your thoughts about it? Um, what I thought about it, uh, w- uh watching it as someone from the twenty first century, you know, uh, was it looked um, well. It didn't look like disco. It looked like new wave. 
they seemed of a a part of uh, of new wave, and it was something different, and it was uh, exciting to see. Uh, One of those appearances, and I I found this, uh, one of those appearances, uh, they were joined by the group M, who did pop music. Sure you remember that one? Sure do. And uh, let's see here. Uh, The Flying Lizards, who did that that Beatles remake of Money. So there was a lot of uh, um, electronic sort of influenced uh, pop that was happening just seemingly spontaneously at that time. And so that's why I'm always uh, curious to hear to hear from people who had seen that at that time, because it seemed to be um, kind of a well, a, a radical break from what had come just a year before, or maybe six months before? Well, um, I'm afraid I don't have a lot of specific memories about that. I do have, uh, I know you want to talk about the videos, and I do have some thoughts about the videos for, for these. We can get to that. that. But, well, it's up to you. But I mean, the, as far as the top of the pops stuff, I think there's a general point, which is that, it, you know, and you were talking about the promotion for this, that this real, we talked about this a little bit last time, this really didn't lend itself to the live record, live presentation at that point in time right so you really had a lot of dubbing and it was like it could have been you know the the, what you saw my guess is that what you saw was probably a little bit out of sync with the music just because the way they were presenting it was different than how it was actually recorded yeah so here's a little tidbit that i found out uh so the the drummer of course that's on the album that's um uh keith forzy right we know that uh but he was unavailable to accompany them uh, when they were doing all of their promotional gigs, including Top of the Pops. So they got a guy named David Humphrey. And I'd never heard of this guy. And it turned out they pulled this guy, David Humphrey. uh, The reason why they had to do it, uh, well, first off, so Keith Forsey wasn't available. So they had to find another drummer. And as it happened, the uh, Virgin had this studio drummer who was great. He was working with Pill at the time, if you believe it, Public I- Image Limited. And um, when they, their first appearance uh, to promote the album, I think the first song they promoted on, be- on um, was Beat the Clock on uh, Top of the Pops. They had David Humphrey, and he had commented that he actually had to learn the drum parts and play the drum parts, and they had to re-record a brand new version of the song to be played while they were mining to that, just because of some sort of musicians' union, uh, you know, thing that they had going on right there in the UK. So I thought that was pretty interesting. That's really interesting. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. So they, in the fir- in the movie, they talked about the problems they had because of the British musicians, and there had to be a certain number of British musicians in the band and that kind of stuff. So it's probably the same issues. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'd love to talk about the videos. Uh, looked into it a bit, and all of the videos, if I'm not wrong, according to IMDb, were directed by a guy named Brian Grant. Um, he's done a whole lot of stuff, uh, since then, but evidently all of those videos were directed, uh, by him. I reached out to him. I have not heard back from him, uh, yet, but, uh, why don't we go ahead and start and, uh, talk about uh, those videos? Because w- uh, w- one of the many things that I think is in- interesting 
uh, about this album that is a break from where they were previously and also shows a break in where the um, where music was going at, at this time was the move to video. And they made four videos for this album, four videos for a six track album. And the first one that they released was, well, let's see here. I know the first single they released was La, La, La Dolce Vita. Let's go ahead and start with that one. So have, have you seen that uh, that video recently? Well, uh, which video are you, are you referring to specifically? The one I saw is with them playing and they have the drummer with them, but it's a very straightforward video. Are you talking about something that's different than that? The official video, as far as I know, for La Dolce Vita has just Ron and Russ, and there's a spectrometer behind yeah. them. Um, yeah. Is there a drummer in there? Uh, the one that I'm thinking of has a drummer. It was a live performance of the song. Um, maybe it's a different one than you're talking about. Okay. Okay. Well, and anyway, uh, so, uh, I mean, that was their first single. I'm not sure if it was their, their first video, uh, but, you know, I got a chance to watch that again today. And uh, I thought it was interesting that, you know, that they had that spectrometer behind them in every shot via a green screen, um, you know, which, you know, to me just sort of, underscored the fact that the, they were going all techie here. And, and I, you know, let, let's go ahead and get this out of the way uh, right now. I love Ron Mayle's hair during this era. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. He grew his hair a little bit. Yeah. Or, or he let it out. Uh, he had, but it, it looked, there was like a new wave thing, the kind of thing that I, you know, that we saw imitated throughout the eighties. He just looked, uh, I don't know. It was something. Uh, it was less like an accountant and more like, um, oh gosh, I don't know, a cool accountant. A cool accountant. And when they redid the album in the uh, twenty-one by twenty-one shows many years later at Islington, he uh, wore a wig to recreate that look. That's oh, he wore a wig. No kidding. Well, that's my understanding of it. And I don't know. Maybe it wasn't a wig. That's yeah. Uh, let's see here. And of course, uh, they did a video for tryouts for the human race, which was actually the final single that they did end up releasing late, late in 1979. They released the single in October of 1979, which by the way, was about two and a half months away from the release of when I'm with you from terminal jive, which I thought was interesting. Well, now that video I'm, I'm very familiar with and yeah. On that video, I watched it a couple times. I just said, well, this, you know, this is where they turned into werewolves during the course of the video. Yep. I think we kind of talked about this the last time a little bit, but I felt like, yeah, this is like the only thing they can do. They can't really capture on video uh, semen moving upstream. You know, that, that probably wouldn't work. And like you said, it, you know, it gets, it would be too much like uh, uh, the Woody Allen movie. Yeah, exactly. I, I think I think <laughs> right. a better video would have been clips from that segment of the Woody Allen movie. Yeah, that would have been a good way to go. Yeah, actually, so. that would have been a good way to go. But to me, the video was kind of um, nondescript and I kind of dismissed it because yeah. I figured, you know, it, it didn't really capture the song. But I understood why they felt they had to do something like that. It didn't work from my perspective. I, I don't know how you feel about it. Um. I think I feel the same way you do. It's a, it's such a wonderful song. It, one of the, one thing that, that, that hurts me a bit when I see these videos is that I, I, I've heard the, 
the the full mixes, the the album versions of these songs. And these songs really need to breathe, especially. I mean, Trials for the Human Race is is one great example because there's a build, there's a build, there's a build, and there's a change. And the same thing happens, uh, of course, for a number one song in heaven. And I feel like the videos take the short, I guess they're the seven-inch versions, I'm not sure. Uh, But it it, it really gives those songs short shrift. Um, But in terms of, like, thematically, I'm not sure where that idea came from to do the werewolves. Okay. You know, kind of wacky. It was kind of fun to watch the looking back. You know what? Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say looking back um, on that video, I'm reminded of a movie like fright night. I don't, it's a, it's a, not a well-known 1985 B movie horror movie. Sparks actually had a song on that film. Uh, but it, it takes me to that. I mean, there's a, there's a cheekiness. There's a cheesiness, of course. Um, does it work? Does it not? I don't know. I, I smile when I see it. Yeah. Or, or an American werewolf in London. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. That came up about that year, I think. Yeah. But uh, you made a very erudite and profound point a minute ago, which is about the songs needing to breathe because – I think that really gets back to the very first thing we said in our very first conversation, which is this is just a tremendously perfect album in in every way from my perspective. So you have these shorter versions that don't do it justice, the seven inches ones for the most part, but then you also have the extended mixes, which I think suffer from the exact same Uh thing. You know, they, they take it and they make it too long. Yeah. So when yeah. we talk about the Noel album, we can talk about that because yes. I think on that album, there's if you listen to the shorter versions, they're actually nice, very powerful pop songs, you know, uh, dance songs, but pop songs. But when you listen to the long ones, I think they lose some of their power and yeah. meaning. But getting back to this, I think your point, that's how I hear what you're saying, which is mm-hmm. the album got it right. The album, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and they do need room to breathe. That's that's a very good way to put it. Now, an exception uh, for me is Beat the Clock. Man, that video nailed it. To yeah, me. no, that's a great video, period. God, what a fantastic video. I mean, it just it, – I'm surprised it didn't get more uh, rotation on MTV. Of course, I know this was two years before MTV. But just what a great way to just – to to introduce to young MTV viewers – and. You know, if, if if it were there, but young video viewers, who these guys were. I mean, this it, it's a it's spectacularly made video, and it showed who uh, their personalities were. Ron and Russ, and uh, there were all these little um, details that I really enjoyed. I loved seeing Ron's face uh, 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 pasted onto a metronome. And uh, at the beginning of the uh, album and this whole notion of the uh, this factory cranking out countless runs and rustles over and over and over again, which was, um, I think, really was uh, it, it, it. No one knew at that time, uh, but it, it, it seemed um, to presage what would happen. Uh, in uh, electronic 
pop music over the next 10 years that you would see these these countless uh, uh, duos you know of you know there's there's the the fire guy and the ice guy there's the guy who's doing all the um, instrumentation and there's the guy who's singing and it just it hit that way for me yeah that's that's a great way to put it and it didn't hurt that the only people who seemed to work at this remember I'm 19 when I'm watching this so mm-hmm. it didn't hurt that the only people who seemed to work at this factory were extremely attractive you attractive know, women right yeah uh, exactly you, you can't go wrong with that combination right well and so that's something else um there's a sexiness to this album and there's a sexiness to the imagery to this album uh, that you didn't see before i mean it, if you ever saw attractive so, women involved it would i mean what what do you see like the, the cover of um kimono my house you know uh right. other than that uh you're there's there's not a sexiness here they seem to be either indulging in or playing on the sex appeal of of the disco scene, and again I say disco because I, I do think that that was heavily on their minds. Well, absolutely, and yeah, you know, I'm looking at the cover now. I, I will tell you, as a 19, 20 year old guy, I spent a lot of time thinking about the woman on the cover of this. <laughs> a lot of time. I won't go any further than that. But you know, she's wearing the uh, white medical smock, but it's open. Yeah. You can, you know, and. We don't need to go into it in great detail, but uh, it, it had a certain sexiness, but also at the same time, a kind of clinical aspect, you know? Exactly. Um, I'm glad you said that. Yeah. So it kind of fits in with disco, which is so regimented in in, in its sound. And, and it ca- I think it captured that sound, but at the same time captured the sexiness that you were just talking about. So. Yes. Thank you for that. So what I love about this album cover and also what I love about beat the clock the um extension of of um that aesthetic in my opinion uh was that you've you've got the sexiness the sexiness of 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 disco and the sexiness of these women uh but you've got them in lab coats like this is some sort of science experiment uh it's a real right brain left brain merge here I mean, yeah. they're holding microscopes. You're not going to see that on the cover of any other disco album or or single, you know, anywhere else. But you know, think about this cover. I mean, it's so spare. Yeah. You know, there's there's no background on the front or the back. There's just the one fluorescent light in the back lighting up her hair a little bit, and that's that's it. And it's just a striking image, and the sparks is just way off in the corner. You know, they don't they don't put their name in big letters. They huh. they, they didn't do that on any of their albums at this point. So Monty. it's just up here in a corner, and then you get this blue album cover that's so spare, and it's it's almost haunting, sterile in a way. Yeah, yeah. It, it's sexy, but it's sterile in, in a way. And I know, and um. Not these days, you know. Not not many people have the original L, LP, I suppose. But um, in uh, introducing, of course, you had the Ron on one side and you had the Russell on the other side. With this album, you had there was a white model on one side and there was a black model on the other side. You know, uh, I, I, I I'm not going to read much into that, but I thought that that was interesting, and and I I, I thought it was 
could have been some sort of callback to that album and that sort of duality. I don't know. But even the name of the album, Number One in Heaven, is you can't, you don't even, almost you don't even see it at the top of the album on the front or the back. You know, it's just, it's just blends in to the point you don't almost don't even see it. So they want you to, it's just like Kimono. They want you to see that image or propaganda. They want you to see that image. See the image. Yeah. Say, okay, how is this image registering to me? And then you say, what is waiting for me when I hear this album? There's a guy named, you know, if you, if you, if you get a, if you, if you get a ACDC or Scorpions album, you pretty much know what you're going to get. With mm-hmm. this one, you get this image. You just say, what is inside of this thing? Yeah. What are they going to be doing? Absolutely uh, an uh, amazing cover. Moshe Braca was Moshe the guy Braca. who did, yep. Yeah, who did the uh, photography of those two models. Uh, and then it was a guy named Stephen Bartell who designed the um, uh, the spark plug uh, logo there. And in fact, I have that on my left arm right now, as of a couple of months ago. Very nice. Yes, thank you very much. Um, and so uh, yeah, that was a nice touch, I think, having the, the, the spark plug there, maybe uh, indicating that there's a spark of creativity happening. Uh, who knows? Uh, but I think we can agree that, the, you know, we... The album cover was interesting, and I liked it. Have you seen the? I've got to add the word haunting too. Haunting. What, what is going on on oh. the on the mind of these models? What is this about? I want to know more. It, it draws you in because it's just so different. Do they look like they're blown back onto the wall a bit? Like there's like there there was some sort of experiment gone awry. That that's the the feeling I get. Well, it's the hair because mm-hmm. they're. It looks like they're leaning against the wall, but their hair is just being blown back. On the front cover, the lady on the front cover, it looks like she may be trying to press down her lab coat, almost like Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, I did think of the Marilyn Monroe analogy. <laughs> Have you seen the the covers for the singles? Yeah, 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 yeah. With Trials for the Human Race, also has that uh, medical kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So, of course, I I never saw those before. Uh, I can grab them. It'll take me a couple minutes to get them. Oh, you have them? Yeah. All right. I I only have JPEGs, so that's fantastic. Yeah. So, the Trials for the Human Race, um, uh, there was a – the cover was done by a guy named Cook Key, and you see one robotic arm – pouring something from a beaker into another beaker held by a, another robotic arm just to underscore this whole technological thing. Yeah. I think the, the, the technological thing is kind of where they were at this point. They were really exploring with it and and thinking about how to make the visuals kind of match the technology of the music in a way. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, they're they're good covers. They're good covers. Yeah, yeah, totally yeah. agree. I also have the La Dolce Vita single that was released in Italy. Really? Yeah. So, well, that was the thing I was going to surprise you with, but it turned out to be a dud, which is that I've been carrying around this list since 1979 of, like, my wish list of things I wanted to get, U.S. releases and U.K. releases. Uh-huh. And I've been carrying it literally in my wallet since 1979. The only time I took it out was when I transferred wallets. 
And I thought I would read that to you, but it turns out it's missing a lot. (laughs) But um, Beat the Clock is on there. A couple of the others are on there, along with some older stuff, too. But, you know, these were stuff that were important to me then, and they're they're still things I'm really glad that I have now. That's great that you have that. I've moved so many times, I couldn't imagine keeping on to those things. Um. So we were talking about videos, and they were, the fourth video that they released was number one song in heaven, of course. I, I don't know if that was the fourth one they, that they released. Um, and by the way, the single art for that was pretty interesting as well, done by the same guy, and you see a, um, a woman's legs being ascended to heaven. Pretty, pretty cool image there. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you remember that video very much. That was more of a performance video. Um I- I do remember it. Uh, I do remember when the ver- version on plagiarism came out with the video. I thought oh. it was uh, Gosh. one of the best of all their videos, the plagiarism one. I can't wait to on this one, I thought it was just pretty straightforward, if I recall. Yeah, it was pretty straightforward. Um, I mean, you know, had the mist, and whatever. It was, yeah, mostly performance. I mean, it was, I guess, sort of interesting that you had uh, some camera tr- camera tricks there, you know, showing Ron, uh, in triplicate, you know, you know, playing different, uh, keyboards just to sort of, I guess, underscore the fact that there's a lot going on here more than you might think, you know, um, with the music. So what I wanted to start off with, uh, well, carry on with, uh, now at this point is, um, the, the second half of, of the album proper. I know we've talked about that a little bit, but let's go ahead and just go ahead and uh, get into it. So in a perfect world, the first song on number one in heaven is going to be beat, beat the clock. Yeah, but they did pretty well without my advice on this. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. I'm going to read the lyrics. All right. Well, I was born a little premature. You got to beat the clock. You got to beat the clock. Mom just couldn't take no more. You got to beat the clock. You got to beat the clock. Had no time to learn to cry. Goodbye, Mama. Got to fly. Bye, 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 bye. And repeat. Entered school when I was two. PhD that afternoon. Never entered any sports. Didn't look too good in shorts. Got divorced when I was four. Got to beat the clock. Got to beat the clock. Well, I've seen everything there is. I've done everything there is. I've met everyone but Liz. Now I've even met old Liz. No time for relationships. Skip the foreplay letter rip. You got to beat the clock. You got to beat the clock. Well, I did lots of traveling. Parts of me unraveling. The army then rejected me. Said I had two flat feet. I thought it was two left feet. Wore them out when I was three. Too bad there ain't ten of you. Then I'd show you what I do. I could cheat on five of you. I love this line. Uh, and be faithful to you too, but there's only one of you. Well, I've seen everything there is. I've done everything there is. I've met everyone but Liz. Now I've even met old Liz. No time for relationship. Skip the foreplay, let her rip. You got to beat the clock. You got to beat the clock. Ad infinitum.
So, uh, so do you have any thoughts about those lyrics? Hell yeah. Uh, the, the first thought I have, which just has to be said, is that they are funny as hell. Yes, they are you funny know? as hell. I, I, I almost feel like there's nothing to be said. Yeah, I mean, you know, I you can analyze everything, right? And you could, you know, and it's a song about the rat race and all, all mm-hmm. this stuff. And that that's all true, I'm sure. But it's just really funny. I mean, that phrase about the army then rejected me, uh, yeah. said I had two flat feet, wore them out when I was three. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Song, right? hilarious. The, the too bad there ain't 10 of you. That whole, yeah, that's, gosh, yeah. that versus that versus hilarious. Yeah. This might be one of the funny, one of the funnier uh, Ron lyrics that I can remember. And to such a great beat and a great song. It really is. Um, and like we were talking last time, uh, when you listen to, to it, it's, to me, one of the two or three, like what I would think of almost in the classic mold of a spark song of a pop song, you know, it's very straightforward. And what I like about this is it, it reminds me of what we talked, we, we didn't talk about the lyrics on Academy Award performance, but there's certain times like on that song and on this song and on Ride 'em Cowboy later, where mm-hmm. he just uses these short phrases and just whips them out one after another, one after another, and tells his story. And that is, to me, a real specialized form of songwriting. I, yeah, I don't know who else does that. And this is a great example. Every line is, is really good. Every line is really good and really funny and really consistent throughout the whole mm-hmm. song. And it's just a really fun song to dance to and to listen to. This is one of the, one of the first songs that really turned me on to Sparks. Mm. I, was, I was a late you know, comer. Uh, it, it was the lyrics, of course. Uh, when I was watching a video, it was the YouTube age, right? You know, 2008. <clears throat> so, you know, it was just sort of a gestalt of everything. You know, the, the, the lyrics were fantastic. The beat was fantastic. The, the imagery was, was fantastic. And I think it also captured a, uh, I think they were trying to capture a, um, an, an era that they felt had just begun, which I guess we might, you know, call the computer era or something. Uh, the, 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 this idea that things are just going too fast. And, uh, and this is a reflection of that. I don't think it was just the computer era though. It was the, the changing times, you know, in the late seventies and the eighties, um, people were starting to think differently. Uh, It's, it's the computers, but it's also just, you know, life was starting to move more quickly at that point, or at least from my perspective, that's how it seemed. And issues became more real, you know, I mean, you know, it wasn't too long when Reagan became president in the United Mm -hmm. States. And all of a sudden that, you know, you were dealing with these life and death issues that were magnified and, and it just seemed like everything was captured in this song. This was pre Reagan, of course, but I'm just saying you could see where things were going. The world was opening up. We started to understand the world in a different way, and we started to understand, you know, you know there, there were different pressures. I don't know if any of this is making sense. Maybe I no, need to. Does. I'm saying, it, no, it, you know, it definitely, it, 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 yeah, certainly. And I, uh, the thing is, I, I hear a song like this, and I think how appropriate it would sound if it came out, you know, in the Twitter age. Yeah. This 
notion that things are just happening so fast that it's impossible to, to keep up with it. And, you know, to hear that, you know, Ron was uh, writing lyrics to that effect well before most people had the Internet. Um, but I think it also goes back to what you were saying in the mindset of the disco age at that time, yep. which they were trying to tap into a little bit. And that was part of the mindset of the disco age. Um, you know, just how you, you know, the part that you pointed out specifically, um, you know, too bad there ain't 10 of you, then I'd show you what I do, but there's only one of you. I mean, disco is everything was propulsive in terms of how people were relating to each other in that context. And he captured it. In that video, I, I, I said this before, but I love the way Ron picks up that coin as he's sweeping the floors. I don't know. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Just yeah. that, that, that little bit of, um, uh, I don't know if you call that a wink or, or whatever, or whatever to like the sort of ultra capitalism that I think had taken root around that time. That's what I'm getting at. And you just yeah. said it much better than I did. I, I also really appreciate it. And this song, especially of the whole album, the Russell singing is a little bit different. Like he's not, uh, he's not preening. He's not careening. You know, he's not, this is more, his delivery here is much more uh, straightforward. The word that I keep coming back to is arch. It just seems to fit. And when I listen to songs from a few years later by the pet shop boys, uh, by the human league, by, um, uh, heaven 17, and um, Depeche Mode, they, I, I, I'm hearing that sort of influence there. Well, as, I'm glad you raised Russell because there's a really, there's something I want to just put out there. Um, you know, I, I talked about my feelings about his singing on this album uh, yeah. when we last talked. I think it's a pinnacle of success, you know, the way he, the way he sings on this album. And, if I had to pick one of my top five or six Russell moments, there's two places in this song where he sings, you got to beat the clock. But the first one where he really just lets it out and belts it out. That uh-huh. is so beautiful and so powerful and so Russell right there. So thank you for the opportunity to, to put that on the record there a little you bit. You got it. You got it. Uh, all right, so we talked about the videos. Let's um, let's go ahead and get through the the rest of uh, uh, side B or in a perfect world side A, whatever. Um, this is a song that's not talked about a whole lot. Uh, my my other voice, the second song on on side B. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, do you want to give the lyrics first, or do you want? Yeah, to- sure. Why not? Let's go ahead and do that. All right, so here are the lyrics. There, there are not very many. You're so independent, but that's going to change real soon. With my other voice, I can destroy this room. I'll wrap my voice around you and I'll drag you everywhere. My other voice. You think you're romantic? We'll, well, I'll whisper in your ear. I'll be all you'll hear for years and years and years. You may be deaf to everything. You won't be deaf to me, my other voice.
Now, before you say anything, I have not spent a, a single moment actually thinking about these lyrics. So I'm very curious to hear what you might have to say. Okay. Two or three things. I mean, you know, again, not everything has to be overanalyzed. It's just a really weird song, you know, about a guy who's coming from a weird place. I'm okay with that. I'm sure others will be able to find all kinds of contexts and layers there. But there's two two points. One, for reasons I do not know to this day, my elderly mom loved this song. Really? Wow. She, she loved this song. When I, I would play her little bits of this album because it was cool, and she wanted to hear this one over and over and over. And she was a singer herself. And she just loved singing along wow. with the second voice where it changes. <sighs> yeah. She just loved singing along with it. Oh, when he starts doing the, uh, I guess, a vocoder, maybe? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You think you're romantic. She loved it. Oh, I don't well, know. That's, that's great. It's a great story. <laughs> the second thing I would say about it is uh, I'm having so much fun. I'm probably nowhere near the mic. So this could be. Oh, man. No, I, I hear you. But the second, you. the second thing I'll say about it is that what I always liked about this song personally, is that it's kind of an, it, it's anomalous to the rest of the album. It's it is, not, right? It's just a short song. It's about something very disconcerting and troublesome and kind of scary in a way. It's, I guess you could dance to it, but I don't think you would. <laughs> right? So I always liked it because it's just such a change of pace right in the middle of the album. They hit you with this and then they go on and finish up the album with number one in heaven. So it's, it's a short little thing, but it's always had a very special little place in my heart for, for those reasons, I guess. That's a great story, man. Yeah. I appreciate that. Uh, what do you think? What, what do you think is going on with the rhythm? There's obviously some, some backwards stuff happening there. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, I, I don't know how they do it. I don't, you know, we, we had some conversation and there were some interesting things that people raised about all this on Facebook in responding to some of your, your, your posts about this. And people were raising some interesting points. I don't know if it's 4Z playing or if they're using electronics here a little bit, but yeah. it's not a straightforward rhythm in any, by any means. Right. It's like, and it just kind of repeats that, and then it comes in with doom, do, doom, do, doom, doom, yeah, doom, doom, do, doom. And and I don't know if that's a rhythm or a melody, but I mean, it's just kind of there, you know. It's it's its own little piece of work. It's kind of uh, anomalous to the rest of the music on the album, I think. And so for me, it's even though it's short like that, it's always stood out as a really special moment on this on this entire album. Yeah, I agree with you, and I think that. Um, if this planted any sort of roots in future music, it was uh, with a, a ambient, uh, an, an ambient pop mm -hmm. kind of thing uh, that I hear. There are a lot of groups like Boards of Canada. I don't know if you're familiar, or uh, uh, um, what is it, the Orb, uh, that that sound uh, similar uh, uh, to this. But I, yeah, uh, it took me a long time to come around. To this one, just because it is such a, it almost sounds like a intermission, <laughs> you know, uh, but, but between the bangers. That's, you know? that's a great way to put it. It's an intermission. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I really appreciate what's going on. And, 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 and 
I, you know, maybe someday someone will tell me what's going on here, but it, it's, uh, I, I think a syndrome may be doing a lot of it. And that's probably not something that we talked about a whole lot last time, but there definitely was not just Keith Forsey, but there was a, a syndrome um, that was uh, recently invented um, around that time that was used throughout this album where you, well, we're not hearing Keith Forsey. So I, I'd be curious to know. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I, I think this is more pure electronic. No. Maybe maybe he added something, but I agree with you. Okay, so let's go on. This is... Uh, What's left? Anything left? The finale. Well, we haven't really talked about that. This thing, yeah. I mean, yeah, no, no, well, I, I believe so. I think it's a. And, and and by the way, am I wrong? Do do they do they write out the name of the song differently from the way they write out the name of the album? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the number one song in heaven, and the album is the number one in heaven. Right, but all yeah, and I think the album uh, uses the abbreviation NO, and oh, the song oh. does not. Oh, well, that's an interesting point. And um, like, I never thought to like look into that, like wonder why. I just thought it was kind of weird. And and taking your point a step further, it, the, number one uses the digit one. Yep. Whereas this just spells out, I'm, I'm looking at it now, yeah, yeah. the number one song in heaven. No abbreviations, I, no digits. Yeah. I was just kind of like wondered why. I, hmm. I never thought about it, but that's yeah. it little point funny thing yeah. so um what an amazing song obviously um if i gosh i mean how many hundreds of spark songs are there but you know if you put a, a gun to my head please don't and i you know had to put one in the top five i think this would be in it mm-hmm. uh I absolutely love, and I, I, I think I said this last time uh, we talked in sort of an offhanded way that uh, it, well, it, it's, it's a two part song. Yeah, I mean, that's, we, you know, that, and it, it kind of reminded me of day in the life, you know, from uh, Sar- Sergeant Peppers and the, in the way that the, there's a, the first half is very different from, from the second half. It's like the second half comes alive, you know, and uh, the first half is, is sort of a, a, a different thing. And, of course, you don't get that from the video, unfortunately. Are you going to give us the lyrics, my man? I'll be happy to do that. I'll do it right now. Let's go. This is the number one song in heaven, written, of course, by the mightiest hand. All of the angels are sheep in the fold of their master. They always follow the master and his plan. This is the number one song in heaven. Why are you hearing it now, you ask? Maybe you're closer to here than you imagine. Maybe you're closer to here than you care to be. This is the number one song in heaven, written, of course, by the mightiest hand. All of the angels are sheep in the fold of their master. They always follow the master and his plan. This is the number one song in heaven. Why are you hearing it now, you ask? Maybe you're closer to here than you imagine. Maybe you're closer to here than you care to be. There you have it. You want to stop there? Do I want to stop there? Or you want to go through the second half? Oh my, oh my goodness. Oh, I, I look at that. I, I only put half the lyrics here on my, uh, my notes. Shall I? I? Oh, please do. All right. All right. So 
uh, it's number one, number one in heaven. It's number one, number one in heaven. It's number one all over heaven, the number one song all over heaven. And this is after the big break, right? right. And then they hit you with, if you should die before you awake, if you should die while crossing the street, the song that you hear, I guarantee it's number one all over heaven. It's number one all over heaven. It's number one all over heaven. The, and then some beautiful Russell there. The number one song on all over heaven. The one that's the rage up here in the clouds.
amazing lyrics, aren't they? I know. <laughs> the one that's the rage up here in the clouds, loud as a crowd or soft as a doubt. Lyrically weak, but the music's the thing. Gabriel plays it, God, how he plays it. Gabriel plays it, God, how he plays it. Gabriel plays it, God, how he plays it. Gabriel plays it, let's hear him play it. Then that weird break. Mm. And then the song. <laughs> it's a weird break. It really yeah. is. The song filters down, down through the clouds. It reaches the earth and winds all around. And then it breaks up in millions of ways. Then a lot of la 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 la's. And then, mm-hmm. and then, uh, in cars, it becomes a hit. In your homes, it becomes advertisements. And in the streets, it becomes children singing. Just just hearing those words gives me chills. I, I just, I've been, the la, 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 la. Oh, God. Uh, la, 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 la. It just goes like this. That's it. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we could talk for hours about the song, I think. Yeah. You know, we, we did a little bit. We did a little bit on the first one. And what we talked about, it's like two songs. You know, yeah. One is kind of you can do that kind of gentle dancing too. And it's like, you know, kind of a lilting thing. You're not really paying too much attention to how weird the words are. Then comes this break. And then it just comes this powerhouse. Mm-hmm. And the beat completely changes. It's not a disco beat at that point at all. It's a drum set doing a power beat. The lyrics I tend it's to like, how, how dare you be so transgressive to take <laughs> the hedonism of disco? We're just trying to have a good time here and talk about death. <laughs> and that is one thing that I just love about this. And, you know, Ron in general, frankly. Uh, but you've got this banger right here. And you cannot look away from the fact that, no, 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 you're, 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 jamming to a song that is about what you hear when you die. Maybe you're closer to hear than you imagine. Maybe, Maybe you're closer, closer to hear than you care to be. Fantastic. It yeah. is. It I, is. I, I, actually, I, I, I love when he brings mortality into his lyrics and I especially love it when it's to a, like just a banger dance beat. And he has just absolutely killed it here. They all have. He absolutely killed it. Yeah. 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 The, the, it's beautiful. It, it's powerful. It's beautiful. It's it's the number one song in heaven. So uh, I have to admit, I, I've I've only heard the uh, the remake that they did for um, what was it? Plagiarism. Yeah, plagiarism. I, I've only heard it a couple of times. Uh, how do you think it stacks up? It's good. I mean, you know. It's good. It's a little different. It's there's nothing wrong with it, but this stands on its own. Mm-hmm. You know, this is really, you know, that that's a remake um, on that album. And I know we're way ahead of ourselves here, but on that album, "Angst in My Pants" is like a real change in the song from the first one, and it just adds a really fun element to it. But the first one, you know, they're different. That one is more consistent with this one. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. But like I said before, the video for that one I think is one of their top. Top videos, yeah. Oh, wait, which video? The video they did for the remake. Oh, for the remake. Movie. Okay. Yeah, I that's one I've that. actually I'm watched from a very cinematic perspective. Really got to uh, yeah. catch yeah. up on uh, plagiarism. It's been I've, I've barely heard that, but we'll. we'll yeah, you don't have to rush. Yeah. Okay. Well, apparently I'm not in a rush. Um, yeah, you're okay. 
taken a year to get here. Um, so, uh, okay. All right. So they released the album. They released uh, some uh, singles, uh, some uh, videos. Uh, they were on top of the pops a few times. They did a, oh, I thought this was very funny, by the way. Um, one of the uh, TV shows that they were on was, uh, oh, it was called Cracker Jack in the UK. It was a kid's show. And they performed, uh, and they, they performed, uh, gosh, what was it? Number one in heaven? No, no, the inappropriate one. Sorry. Oh, uh, tryouts for the human yes, race. tryouts. I'm sorry why I couldn't find that. Yes, yeah, so they performed tryouts for the, for the human race, a song about sperm on a kid's show um, called Cracker Jack in, in 1979. Uh, I thought that was a fun little, little tidbit there. There's some very disturbed young children walking I'm around. I'm sure. Well, yeah, who knows? You know, pe- people of my cohort could could be among them because uh, <laughs> this came out the uh, the time I came into the world. Hey, everybody! Uh, it's Christian again. Sorry for the abrupt end. I just wanted to give the second half of our discussion its due, so I am moving it to the next episode. So uh, I encourage you all to tune in. Uh, Noel's Is There More to Life Than Dancing is a really great, uh, it's a cliche to say, but criminally underrated album. Uh, So do check out the next episode and do check out that album if you can. All right. Well, I'll catch you later and dance. God damn it.